let's turn together to, to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Matthew 12, we're looking at verses 22 through 50 uh, this morning. We, we've looked at, uh, last week we were looking at particularly God's, uh, the, well, Christ's understanding and view of the Sabbath. Uh, and today we're looking at two kind of final portraits uh, of, of who Jesus is that Matthew's presenting us in, in chapters 11 and 12. Uh, today they get, uh, well, they, they get rather intense, I'd say. Um, and, and one of the things I'm not really going to talk too much about in the sermon is, is kind of our view of, of uh, what people call spiritual warfare often. Uh, this, this view of how, how, did, how does demon possession work? You see, there, we start with a demon-oppressed man. Um, and how does how does Satan work in our modern day? Do we we don't really we don't really see this in in modern day Britain? And I think what I, I would just caution us on is we we might not we not, might not see it in this way, but but the, Satan I think is very crafty, and he he works in I think in, in places and in cultures in different ways. We can't sort of take this and, and go this is this is exactly how it works in modern-day Britain, but I think there are parts of the world where it does look a lot like this. And then you have modern-day Britain where, uh, well, I think we, we can clearly say that, that there's a lot of uh, things we should be concerned about spiritually in our country today. So that's all I'm going to really say about that. That's not really sufficient. You can ask me about it later if you like. But uh, this is God's Word from Matthew 12, verses 22 through 50. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the, the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed... He may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, is my brother, my sister, and mother. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. What's Jesus talking about? Uh, It's all, uh, it, it seems quite opaque to us, doesn't it? Well, Jesus was both having his authority questioned as well as undermined, wasn't he? The, the leaders of Jesus' day were skeptical about precisely who he was, about, about uh, what authority he had to, to do and say the things that he, he did and said. And that's, that's actually a, a common attitude for all of us, isn't it? We, we want to question uh, most authority, don't we? And, and actually, that's, that's not entirely uh, unfair. Uh, if you ever watch a, a political talk show, then you, you'll often hear... Uh, the, in, in interviewer speaking to a politician and you know they'll ask something like uh, on such and such date the prime minister said X but now he's saying why did he did he get it wrong was he being dishonest or, or is he just incompetent and the response usually goes something like well I think the prime minister was was right when he said X because why isn't really that different from X when you think about it and while we concede that, that we expect X to be a little less Y than it has turned out to be, in the end, Y is where we've landed. So the prime minister got it right. And we hear rubbish like that, and, and we're confused. And we go, can, d- does this person really actually have authority? Can we, we possibly trust anyone in the government? With Jesus, it's, it's different, isn't it? When people came and questioned his authority, he actually gave them an incredibly clear answer. Now, to us, it might... It might sound like like uh, the politician interview, because we we have we're coming to it with modern ears, but uh, we, we may not initially understand uh, or be able to make heads or tails of what Jesus is saying. But if we unpack these these verses, we we begin to get a clear view of of Jesus' authority and its source. We begin to understand uh, his arguments for for who he is and what he came here to do. Again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but, but what we said about Matthew chapters 11 and 12 is, is that Matthew's offering us six portraits of, of the person of, of Jesus. And, and today we see the final two. We see the, the, the portrait of, um, of the one with true spiritual authority. And we see the portrait of the Savior 
for whom the great sign points to. We then have a, a short transition point at the end of the chapter where, where Matthew focus begins to shift from the person of Christ to the establishment of his, of his people, of his church. Now, three things for us to see this morning then. So we see first the source of Jesus' spiritual authority. We see second the sign of Jesus' authority. And third, we see what it means to be in Jesus' family. So first, the, the source of Jesus' spiritual authority. Remember last week that, that Jesus withdrew after he was confronted over the Sabbath day. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't looking for a fight. He wasn't looking for an argument with the, the spiritual leaders of his day. But, uh, so, so when he went away, though, people were, were still coming to him, uh, especially people who were in need of healing, and he was healing them. And Matthew now zooms in and focuses in on a particular demon-depressed man. And we've heard similar accusations in Matthew about Jesus before, haven't he? This, this man, he was blind, he was mute. So they bring him to Jesus, and, and Jesus heals him. He casts out the evil spirit. And there were two reactions. The reaction of, of many of the people gathered there was, could this, be, could this be the Messiah? That's what they meant by, could this be the, the son of David? In verse 23. But the other reaction we hear is, is in the words of the Pharisees. These spiritual leaders of Jesus' day, in verse 24, it's, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. You know, the, the United States, we had a, a famous musician back in the 1920s and 30s named Robert Johnson. And he was such a, such a good guitar player that a, a legend emerged of, of this man who, uh, it's it said that he, he took his guitar one night to a crossroads in rural Mississippi where he met the devil. And the devil took his guitar, he tuned it, he played a couple songs on it, he gave it back to him, and that's why Robert Johnson was such a great guitar player. You know, it sounds silly, but actually, throughout, throughout history, often when people were doing good, they're, they're accused of doing it through some evil power. That's what's happening in, in our passage. You know, this is the accusation that Jesus is having to respond to, that he's, he's doing good through evil power. And I think it's important for us this morning to recognize exactly who Jesus is speaking to here. He's speaking to people like me. He's speaking to the ministers of his day. He's speaking to the religious leaders. And he's doing it in front of their congregation, the people that were gathered there. So there is something for all of us here, but we should, we should mark that, that Jesus has a very strong warning for the religious leaders of his day. And I think religious leaders in any day. These men, these Pharisees, make a, an incredibly nasty accusation against Jesus here because, because they don't want the people to be following him. They're trying to prevent people from, from coming to Jesus. The Pharisees are, are making a, this, this clear public declaration regarding who they believe Jesus to be. And that is obviously a very serious thing for these men to do because they're responsible for the hearts of the, the Jewish people. This is one that they have to get right. It's one judgment that's absolutely critical. And their decision is that Jesus is dangerous. He's not a good guy in their eyes. And he's actually from the devil, and he's trying to deceive the people of God. In other words, these religious leaders want to pull people away from Jesus. They want to hinder them from coming to him. So what does Jesus say to them in response to this accusation? Well, he actually gives a very thorough response. He makes an argument from common sense. He makes an argument from uh, necessity or mission. 
And finally, he gives a, a very serious warning to these, to these religious leaders. First, he makes this argument from common sense in verses 25 to 28. He says, uh, if a kingdom or household is divided, then how can it stand? Jesus actually attacks the, the central core of the, the spiritual theology of the Pharisees. He calls on them to judge for themselves. Jesus tells them that it's in fact in the best interest of, of evil spirits to do evil, to maim, to cause people to be blind and mute like this, this man that he healed. These spirits and, and, and the devil delight in human suffering because in that is, is the very heart of evil to do harm for pleasure or, or just because you can, because it makes you feel powerful, because you want to destroy the, the, those who are created in the image of God. You, you're in such rebellion against him that you want to cause harm wherever you can. The heart of evil is to call evil good and good evil. So what would be the purpose in, in Jesus undoing what was done if he was on the side of evil and of the devil? That's the question, and, and the answer is obvious, isn't it? It would serve absolutely no purpose. The accusation of the Pharisees defies both logic and common sense. And Jesus even argues here for, for objectivity and fairness, doesn't he? In verses 27 and 28, he says, If I cast out demons, if I, if I undo evil through evil, then how do you and your followers, your, your sons, how, are, how is it that they're casting out demons? You see, Jesus wasn't the only one casting out demons. Some of the, the Pharisees were apparently able to do this as well, along with, with perhaps some others. So by what power were they doing it? Well, they can't argue that they did good with one power and Jesus with, with some other evil power. If something is good, it has to be objectively good. And that's verse 28. <clears throat> but if it is by the Spirit of God that, that Jesus cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, Jesus' argument when you stop and, and kind of take it apart a little bit is fairly straightforward, isn't it? It's an argument from common sense, coupled with, with fairness. But the second thing is Jesus makes this, this little argument from, from necessity in verse 29, doesn't he? He says, if, if I've come to overthrow evil, then in order to do that, he has to first bind up the strong man. He he can't be working for Satan if he's trying to, to neutralize him in order to, uh, to quote, plunder his goods, which are the, the people that Satan is seeking to oppress. See, Jesus is pointing to, to his mission. And, and the, the wonder of this, this statement, the beauty of it, is that, that Jesus is, is actually claiming a power far greater than, than that of the Pharisees, that he has the power to bind up Satan, to, to neutralize him. And if that's true, and if Jesus has, has bound up Satan in his, his death and resurrection, then, then actually the, the devil and the, the spirits that we face in our day today uh, are, are, are already defeated. There, there are devil and minions whose time is, is coming to a close very soon. And so that gives us hope and encouragement, doesn't it? But the third thing that Jesus argues is he gives them this, this well, it's not an argument, it's a, it's a stern warning, isn't it? He gives them this very stern warning in 30 through 37. And I won't, I won't unpack every verse. I'm not going to read it all. But if you've, if you've been around the church for any length of time, I'm sure you've probably fretted over verse 31 to some extent. Where Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit 
will not be forgiven. You've probably, you've probably worried about this yourself, haven't you? You've probably wondered, have I, have I committed that sin? And the standard answer, and I think it's, it's the correct pastoral answer to that question is, if you find yourself asking that question, then you, probably, you, you, you haven't done it. You probably haven't done it. It's the people who aren't asking the question that need to worry. What Jesus is, is warning the spiritual leaders of God about is rejecting him in purposely trying to lead others astray. See, this isn't meant to only apply to the spiritual leaders, but it's important particularly for them to, to hear these words of Jesus and to, to take them to heart. Jesus is rebuking these leaders for publicly claiming that he was working for the devil when in fact he is the Messiah. Quite literally, he's saying there's a, a special place in hell for people who are not just obstinate in their unbelief, but deliberately seek to turn people away from the Messiah. See, that's the very heart of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When God is, is calling to sinners to come to him, while others are seeking to, to push them away and hold them back and sow seeds of doubt because of their unbelief. Jesus says that's a terrible and unforgivable sin to set yourself up as the enemy of God. He makes it very clear, doesn't he, that, that you just can't be neutral when it comes to him. Verse 30, you, you have to either be for him or against him. There's, there's no in-between, is there? He says... He says there's, there's no option for, for liking Jesus a whole lot. There's no option for respecting him. There's no option for considering him to, to be a, a, a really special prophet. He's either the son of God, the one sent by the father. He's the heir of King David's throne, the, the one king to whom you owe all your allegiance and to whom you, you look for for your salvation. Or you stand against him. You see, the Pharisees, in one sense, were right in, their, uh, in, in how they, they understood the spiritual world. They, they, they understood the spiritual world probably more profoundly than, than we do. They just got to the wrong conclusion. See, we need to be sober about this, folks, in our own day and time. I said a few weeks ago when we were talking about the mission of the church and how we were we as, a, as both a church and as a, as a culture, we, we need to, to recognize how serious it is to hear Jesus and yet to stubbornly reject him as Savior and Lord. There seems to be uh, even more serious punishment for people in this state. He suggests that in this, this passage as well. Jesus adds to that the seriousness of trying to keep others from him. And what we need to recognize is that, is that this happens all the time in our world. It happens all the time in our culture often in, in small ways. But it happens in our schools and universities when, when teachers tell our children that, that uh, Christianity is untrue or even, in some cases, dangerous. It happens particularly heinously uh, in, in churches when, when they claim special spiritual power or miracles in order to, to simply enrich the minister. It happens in, in churches when they say, that, you know what, the, Jesus is a nice guy, the Bible's an inspirational book, but you can pretty much live however you want. They don't take sin seriously. This happens all the time in our world. We, 
We shouldn't pretend that it can't happen even in our own churches. You know, perhaps it isn't as, as overt or public, but it happens wherever, wherever ministers or church leaders abuse the vulnerable. The people that, that have been entrusted in their care for their own power or their own pleasure. And they, they drive the vulnerable, these dear ones, away because they, they equate the abuse and the abuser with Christ. This happens. It happens in churches all the time, all over the world. You see, the sin against the Holy Spirit, it can take many forms. And it's far more common than we, we like to think. But the whole point Jesus is making is that he is the Savior. He's the Holy One of God. And any person, Pharisee, minister, spiritual guru, teacher, or, or anyone else in all the world that would discourage you from following him, any of these people who, who refuse to point you to him as your only hope of salvation, they're going to be in serious trouble when they have to give account for their actions. See, this is the, the judgment, Jesus, that we're talking about this morning. It's, it's I know, a bit less pleasant than than the, the merciful, gracious Jesus that we've talked about. These are heavy things that Jesus has to say to us this morning, aren't they? Because he's talking about such serious judgment, especially for those who don't accept him and who, who harm others in coming to him. And we actually should, should expect this of Jesus because it is actually the, the flip side of, of, of the, the gracious Jesus coin. Remember when he, when he, he looked at the, the crowds, I, I keep coming back to this in my own reflections, but when Jesus looked at the crowds coming to him and he had compassion on them because they were, they were, they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Well, Jesus is being a proper good shepherd here this morning. And he's warning of the dire consequences of leading his sheep astray. He's warning the, these, these men against rejecting the, the proper shepherd. It's, it's the flip side of the coin. It's, it's the thing that we, we actually desperately need. These men were harassing in, uh, his, his helpless sheep. And so the shepherd's stepping in and he's laying down the staff, the law. He's being a proper good shepherd. But you still actually, actually hear the graciousness of Jesus in these words, in these verses, towards even these men in verses 33 to 37. And I'm not going to go back and un- unpack these uh, in detail, but but 33 to 37, you hear him, you hear him warning, don't you, about about the the fruit that trees that a tree bears. You know, you can't you can't have a half hearted tree that sort of bears some good fruit and some bad. He says, if if the tree's bad, it bears only bad fruit. If it's good, it bears only good fruit. He's saying, be a good tree. Bear good fruit. Trust in Christ. Follow me. He warns them that they will be accountable for every word that they have ever spoken. Even those, those words that they've said quite flippantly. You can't, you know, I, I just didn't think it through is not an excuse on the day of judgment, Jesus says. These are serious things, aren't they? They're serious things. And I'm afraid they don't get any lighter in our second point this morning. The second point this morning is, is the sign of Jesus' authority. After all these things Jesus just said, the, the Pharisees seem to have lightened up a little bit. They, they appear to have changed their attitude ever so slightly. They, they come to him and they, they call him teacher, which is a, a term of endearment uh, in Jesus' day. 
They call him teacher, but, but then they say they, they wish to see a sign from him. Maybe they thought, okay, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. So he doesn't like it when we publicly accuse him of, of being the devil or working for the devil. Most people don't. So let's ask him to, to show us something good. Let's ask him to give him a chance to show us a sign, something, something from God. Now, now there's a key difference between a, a sign and a miracle. A miracle can, can be open to question. There were, there were lots of people in Jesus' day doing or, or claiming to do miracles. We have that today even, don't we? You know, we just heard Jesus say that, that the Pharisees' sons were casting out demons. So, so in other words, a, a miracle or casting out of a, a demon didn't necessarily prove anything. It's that rather cheap definition of miracle, isn't it? Like when, when someone comes to you and, and they're, they're really excited and they're really happy, something good's happened to them and they, they didn't expect it and they said it's, it's a miracle. Well, it probably wasn't, but, but you know what they mean. God's intervened in their life in a way that, that they're excited about and we can celebrate that. But what, what the Pharisees are asking for is, is something a, a, a bit different. They're essentially saying to Jesus, all right, we'll concede the point that miracles are objectively good and you've done some. But lots of people have done miracles. Our problem is that you've made many other claims and you've not offered us sufficient evidence. So they're getting, they're getting to the real issue. They're getting to the heart of the issue. They've heard Jesus claim to be God. And we've talked about this in previous weeks where, where we said, made it very clear Jesus was claiming to be God. It's not always clear to our 21st century ears, but the Pharisees in their, their first century Jewish ears heard it very clearly. They've heard him make this claim. So now they're asking for a sign. They want a sign, a sign with something direct from heaven. It was clear and it was indisputable. It would be things like the Holy Spirit ascending like a dove in the voice of, of the Father calling Jesus his beloved son at his baptism back in chapter 3. But not everyone saw that. It was a relatively small number of people. In chapter 17, there'll be a sign when Jesus is is uh, transfigured, but only a few, very few of his disciples will see that. So how does Jesus respond to the Pharisees? The Pharisees are saying, we, we demand a sign. We want to see. We want evidence. But he rebukes them, first of all, doesn't he? For not accepting them based on the evidence he's already, he's already displayed, what they've already seen. And then he tells them that there will be a sign. They're going to see a sign. The sign of Jonah, verse 40. For, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now he's very explicit, isn't he? It's hard to miss this. He's very straightforward. He tells them there's going to be a sign to look out for. And it's the resurrection. You know, he's not like the politician who, who tries to argue that, that Y could be interpreted as X. He says the, the Son of Man will be three nights in the, in the heart of the earth, in other words, he'll be dead and buried, and then he's going to be alive again on the third day. You can't mistake that, can you? We have to stop here a moment and consider just how important these words of Jesus are for us as his church today and for all his followers. See, Jesus marks out the resurrection as the clearest and most important sign that he is who he claims to be. The empty tomb, the eyewitness accounts of, of the risen Savior are, are so important because what Jesus suggests here is that, that there's not going to be any other sign that will be given, either in his day or in ours, or in any other day. He says we have the resurrection. 
And if you need something else, then, then Jesus says you're, you're in trouble. You're, you're hard-hearted if, if you're demanding a sign other than that. Look at what he tells them in verses 41 and 42. He tells, them, he tells the leader of the Jews that if they can't accept the resurrection, then they're actually going to be condemned by the Gentiles of Nineveh and the Queen of the South. These, these are, are outsiders, you know, out, people outside of, of the people of God. But, but there, there are two groups of people who, who listened to God's servant and repented. You remember, you remember the story of Jonah. He, he got swallowed by, by the fish. It was inside the belly of the fish for three days because he didn't want to go and, and proclaim the, the coming judgment of God to the people in Nineveh. Why? Because he knew they would repent. He knew that God was gracious. And so he ends up going there. What happens? They, they repent because God's gracious. See, the hard-hearted Jew didn't want to go and, and see the Gentiles repenting. Jesus is saying the, the Gentiles, the, the outsiders, are going to condemn these, these spiritual leaders of the people of God in the last day. See, when we listen to Jesus, what he's saying here is, is that Jesus is suggesting that listening to God's spokesperson, to his prophet, being obedient to his words, is, is in many ways synonymous with repentance. When we listen to Jesus and his word and receive it and become obedient to him, that's, that's the very heart of, of what repentance is. It's not, it's not just being sorry for our sins, but it's turning from them and be, being obedient to our Savior. And he finishes with the Pharisees here by asking them this, this question, 43 to 45. It's actually quite a profound question. What kind of house are you going to be? And this is a, a real challenge for the Pharisees and, and all the listeners that day. What kind of house are you going to be? Are you going to be a house that goes through all the motions of faith? that gets itself cleaned up and in order, but never fills it with anyone of value, that doesn't actually welcome Jesus in, well, in that case, you're, you're going to be worse off than, than you when you started. That's the message, isn't it? That's the warning. That's the dire warning for us in this room this morning. It's easy to come to church. And it's easy to, to live good lives, to participate in, in the Lord's Supper, to know a lot about uh, the, the word of God, to have a lot of head knowledge about Jesus, to say yes to, to church membership vows, to do lots of, of charity work because we think that's what Jesus inspires us to do. But what Jesus calls us to is, is actually to hear him and to welcome him in to our hearts, to let him fill our hearts and to, to drive out the evil that's there so that it doesn't return. And Jesus challenges us to square ourselves with how we, how we relate to him here. Just as he, he challenged the Pharisees. This wasn't a, a struggle only for the Pharisees. It's not only a struggle for us 2,000 years later. It wasn't only a struggle for, for the Jews, the, the people gathered there that day. This is a struggle for, for Jesus' own earthly family, wasn't it? And that's what we see in our third and final point this morning what it means to be in Jesus' family. See, Jesus is laying out all these heavy things, you know, these, these hard and, and heavy teachings, and he's, he's calling out the religious leaders of his day, these, these highly respected men, even dangerous men, men who had the power to, to 
even put him to death. And so you can imagine that this was, was pretty awkward at the very least, right? You know, things may have gotten pretty heated or, or they may have been even worse than heated. It may have been that, that stony silence where, where the Pharisees were, were sitting there shamed into red-faced silence, angry as all get out. When who turns up but Mary and, and Jesus' brothers? And it seems that, that they're embarrassed and, and probably a bit, afra- a, a bit afraid for Jesus as well as, as for themselves, aren't they? Matthew says they, they stood outside. They, they didn't want to go in. They didn't want to be too closely associated with Jesus. They were there to, to take him in hand and to talk some sense into him. They wanted to get him home where, where he wouldn't cause any more problems or, or raise, a, raise a fuss. They wanted to get him out of there. Mark's gospel implies that they thought he had lost his mind and needed help. They viewed him not as their savior, but as their charge, somebody who, who they needed to take, take care of and protect. What Jesus says here is almost more awkward than the things he's been saying to the Pharisees. Your, mom, your mother and your brothers are here. Who, who are my mother and brothers? Who are they? Who are my true family? And then he says something incredible, doesn't he? he? He stretches out his hands and he says, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. He stretches out his hands towards his disciples, towards these people who have been sitting and listening to his words and, and receiving him and trusting him. Jesus' earthly mother and brothers were weren't doing that. They were, they were outside. But Jesus says, my, my true family are those dear people who listen to me and who are obedient to my Father in heaven. And we've heard a lot of heavy things this morning. If you, if you were looking for a nice light and inspirational message, sorry. Uh, you, you've come to the wrong church today, I'm afraid, but we're glad you're here. Um, <laughs> amidst even the heaviest things Jesus had to, to teach, he can still, we can still see the wonder and beauty of who Jesus is. He's a savior who's not to be trifled with. He's not to be treated as an interesting person. He's not meant to be on your list of most influential people in your life along with a lot of others. He's, he's either everything or he's nothing. You're either for him or you're against him. And the beauty of, of the gospel is actually how simple it is to, to claim Jesus as your all and everything. It's how simple it is to, to become part of Jesus' family. If you, if you want to be part of his family, then don't be like his mother and brother standing outside hoping he's going to stop upsetting the people in charge. Jesus is always going to upset the powerful in this world. If you want to be, like, be part of his family, don't be like the Pharisees accusing him of evil. If you want to be part of Jesus' family, then listen to him and be obedient to him. Turn from, from your sinfulness and rebellion and seek the shelter and comfort of a Savior who entered into our world to drive the evil from it and to make his dwelling among us that that evil may never return. Let us pray.